Welcome to episode 24 of the MMA Rundown. Uh, coming in a little bit late on this one, as I had talked about, did release episode 23, which was just a breakdown of all the UFC champions who I think matches up best with them. So you did get that content, but I'm also going to give you the regular podcast, which is this one right here. Topics we'll cover is Joanna Young-Jacek defeating Michelle Waterson in the main event at UFC Tampa. We'll talk about lessons learned from Crone Gracie and Mackenzie Duran suffering their first pro losses, being both former ADCC champions or both former Black Belt World champions. A lot of hype behind him, but both of them now have losses. What to make of that? I'll then look at Ben Askren, who had a couple tweets that were pretty critical of Crone Gracie, just going through them and talking about whether or not Ben's on point or not. Ben's had some criticism for Crone in the past, and it seems as though with this loss he was happy to bring up some more criticism of Crone Gracie. Then I'll go through the rest of the UFC Tampa card, just do a full recap there. Preview UFC Boston, which is coming up this weekend on Friday. Talk about the UFC doing business in China after the big debacle with the NBA. Does this have any effect on the UFC? Should it have any effect on the UFC? So we'll cover that. There's a brawl between managers from Front Row Management, which is the Malkikawa group, which represents John Jones, and Ali Abdelaziz, which is dominant MMA, and they have Khabib and a bunch of other top guys, including Kamaru Usman. And the last thing I'll talk about is Cain Velasquez going to the WWE. Before I get started, though, and, and I'll mention this at the end as well, I'm going to post a link on both the podcast link and then also on YouTube. But I'm going to be doing a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Super Fight this weekend. Got it on late notice. actually got it last Thursday. And with it, it's for an organization called Tap Cancer out there, a sponsor of the Matt Burn Podcast. But they also do a lot of good work for charity. And I don't expect anyone to... I mean, if you're in the Chicago area and you want to come, like, go ahead and do it. But if not, there is a donation option. So I will include that link if you want to donate some money in my name to Tap Cancer out. They're a really good cancer charity. There are charities like Susan G. Komen where most of the money that you end up giving them ends up going back towards business expenses and really not a whole lot goes towards the actual charity or towards the actual cause with tap cancer out uh, i think in the 80 percent range of the money that you donate actually does go to the cause so it's a good cause to give to and it, it's nice giving giving to them not just because of what they do for cancer but when they succeed they also are able to offer opportunities to people like me who, who want to be able to compete on a cool stage and have a super fight in jiu-jitsu so it's a win in both ways it's good for the martial arts but it's also good for the cancer charity, uh, but I'll talk about that at the end as well. Now on to the actual topics. We have Yuan and Jacek versus Michelle Waterson in the main event. This fight went about as I expected it, although I think Waterson had more more moments in it than I expected with her being able to get Jacek's back at one point. The striking stats, I mean, it was 226 to 71 for Yuana, 180 to 58 if you're counting significant strikes. So on the feet, Yuana had a big edge there, and she was able to dominate from there. It was interesting seeing Michelle decide that her takedown of choice was going to be that that headlock throw, and her getting her back taken at times by Joanna. Even one point where Joanna took her back and decided to foot sweep her, take her down, and then go for sort of like a dar slash Japanese necktie attempt. It wasn't ever all that close, but it, it looked like there could have been something there if she really wanted to get after it. So it's pretty neat to see Joanna actually decide not only to grapple defensively, but in some cases to actually grapple offensively against Michelle Waterson too. Uh, but for as long as this fight was on the feet, a- as you'd figure, Joanna was going to land more volume. She was going to land the bigger shots. She did that, busted up Waterson pretty good, and was able to win over the course of five rounds. On to the next topic from there, and, and I think these- this topic is probably going to be a lot more interesting to a lot of people. Both Mackenzie Dern and Crone Gracie were highly touted prospects uh, for different reasons. Mackenzie Dern, because in the women's divisions, there aren't a whole lot of top prospects coming in from other sports. We're seeing Kayla Harrison right now get a lot of play in the PFL because she's got a great judo background. Ronda Rousey made a great career for herself. 
coming in pretty quickly after a, a pretty good judo background, having a, having a pretty good judo background. People were way behind, people were behind Sarah McMahon when she came in because she had that silver medalist background, got all the way to a title fight. Holly Holm has had a pretty good career just because she had a great background in boxing. Tatiana Suarez has a lot of hype behind her now because she had a good background in wrestling. And Mackenzie Dern also had a lot of hype behind her because she had a great background in jiu-jitsu. Then you look at Crone Gracie, a little bit more difficult in that it's not so easy just to be one-dimensional now and have success, but to the point that he was 5-0, and getting a win over Kawa Jiri, which isn't nothing, getting a dominant win over Alex Caceres, which isn't nothing. There was sort of this question where it's like, on paper, he shouldn't make it to the top of the top of the top of the heap. On paper, he shouldn't become a top 15 guy. On paper, he shouldn't become a championship contender. But he hasn't lost yet, and if no one finds a way to beat him, if he's an ADCC champion in 2013 who who can just dominate on the ground, and at least when the fight hits the mat, he does have a style that's very good for MMA. Then you have to wonder, hey. We just got to keep seeing this ride out until he finally loses, and with Cup Swanson, he finally did lose. So for Mackenzie Dern, I've been on this way before she was even in the UFC. I, the problem with Mackenzie Dern is that if you are a jiu-jitsu athlete competing, who's transitioning to MMA, there are a couple things that are extremely important. One of them is that you can actually get the fight to the ground, which Mackenzie Dern isn't all that effective at doing, doesn't have very good takedowns. Um, but then on top of that, if you do get the fight to the ground, you have to be very good about finishing quickly, or at least being able to continually progress through... P- progress through positions. So what I mean by that, there's a, an old line, I, I'm probably paraphrasing it here from Hicks and Gracie, actually, where the idea is that if you have him in your guard, he's going to make sure that you never get a better position than being on bottom with him in your guard. If he then passes to your half guard, you will never have a better position than him being in your half guard. Then once he passes your guard, you're never getting your guard back. Once he gets to mount, you're never getting a better position than mount. Once he gets your back, you're never getting a position better than back. Um, and then eventually either time's going to run out or he's going to tap you. That's the the sort of grappling that we need to see from from top jujitsu guys who are coming over to MMA for us to believe that they're going to be able to to really be, become stars. With Damian Maya, we see that a lot. With, with Maya, it's constantly a progression forward. Uh, he'll, he'll get in your guard. He'll pass your guard. He'll get to mount. You're you're just not recovering any kind of guard with him. He'll take your back, and he he's just going to stick on your back either until he chokes you out or until the round ends. That's the sort of grappling that you need to have if you're going to be successful going from jujitsu to MMA. Uh, but the takedowns matter too. And with Mackenzie Dern, the takedowns aren't there, but she also doesn't have that grappling. There are a lot of matches, a lot of fights that she had where she would get a fight to the ground in an early round, wouldn't finish. Get the fight to the ground in the middle round, not finish. Get the fight to the ground in the third round, not finish. There'd be more rounds where it would go to the ground and she wouldn't get a finish or she wouldn't have her opponent in a position where she's about to finish before time runs out. So it, it was one of those things where it's like, yeah, this isn't going to last very long. And it's no surprise that in a girl in Amanda Rebus, who's a very good black belt on her own, uh, in, in her own right, who's also got a black belt in judo, so she's, so she's not easy to take down, that this would be a really bad match for Dern. Rebus outstruck her on the feet, went to the ground a couple times, but Rebus was more than good enough to be able to stay out of danger. And as a result, Mackenzie Dern suffers a loss here. People might want to bl- blame it on the fact that she's coming back four months after having a baby. To me, this wasn't an issue of her coming back after not training hard because she was just having a baby. To me, this is an issue of her just not having the skills and dealing with a better fighter and no matter what time this fight happens, Rebus is going to be the better fighter. So that wasn't terribly surprising there. For Crone Gracie, he doesn't really have the takedowns, but he does have the style on the mat where once he does get you down, he's going to constantly progress forward and constantly get to better positions, either until time runs out or until he gets a finish. So he does have that part to his game. There's also the fact that he is Hickson's son. And in a way, I feel bad for him being Hickson's son, especially since his older brother passed away. After that happened, there was a lot of pressure on him to, to be the next Hickson. 
it, it's sort of like one of the worst things you can really have for a kid is for them not to really have the freedom to do what they want, but for their parents to really force them down a certain path. I'm not saying that he doesn't enjoy jujitsu, but I think he's had a complicated life and it hasn't really been easy for him having Hicks and Gracie, just this absolute legend in the jujitsu community. And all, all these people want to see him be the next Hickson. And with that being said, for him to still go through and win ADCC in 2013, that's pretty impressive. It's pretty amazing what he's done. But there was this question where when he does make that transition to MMA, how's he going to do? Getting the win over Kawajiri meant to lock his Kawajiri is not the easiest guy to take down and control, or not the easiest guy to submit. Even if you do get him down, he was able to find a submission on him. Caceres, a little bit different, because Caceres does have those openings in his game where you can get him down, and Chrome was able to make him pay for that, but tapped him out extremely quickly once he did get him down. With Cup Swanson, to me, I was really concerned about this matchup for him for pretty much the precise reasons why he lost. It, to me, it's just a question of would Cub be able to execute the game plan with the game plan being <clears throat> just being able to circle out, stay in boxing range, um, just light up Crone every time he got within range, and get out before Crone could close in on a takedown. I was watching this fight with some friends while I was um, out on vacation, and one of the things that they kept saying is, why doesn't Crone shoot for a takedown? Why isn't Crone trying to take him down? Why isn't Crone trying to take him down? And my response to them was, tell me, while we were watching the fight, I'm like, tell me right now when you think he should actually shoot. And the thing is, is like they, they just kind of started to become quiet because what they realized is that Chrome would never get in a position where he even could shoot for a takedown. He, he wasn't in a good spot to shoot for a takedown. Cub was constantly getting out of the way. He was landing shots, circling out. It's not as though Cub didn't, or it's not as though Chrome did not want to take this fight to the ground. He definitely wanted this fight to go to the ground. You just have to have the opportunities to do so. And if your striking is where Cronin's is at, where he can't set up takedowns adequately with his strikes, then when are you going to shoot? When are you going to be able to get in tight enough to, to get a good grip where you can actually go for a takedown? Like, the best opportunity he had was that one where he had the overhook, went for the throw. Um, Cub had that whizzer on it and was able to avoid getting put on his back. But, but I mean, outside of that, it's not like Crone had a lot of opportunities where he could actually shoot. It's not like he didn't want to shoot. It's just he wasn't there. He was throwing some shots here, and surprisingly, the strikes ended up being closer than I would have expected, with it being 143 to 109, uh, 135 to 86 in terms of significant strikes. But the strikes that Cub was landing, he was just ripping into him, whereas Crone was just kind of reaching out and sort of like touching up Cub. He definitely did mark up his face, but to me, it's not as though it ever looked like Crone had, was close to winning this fight. He was just sort of like chasing down Cub Swanson and just getting hammered in the process. So for Crone moving forward, again, he's going to have to be able to get the fights to the ground if he wants to win these, win these fights. He showed an incredible amount of toughness and definitely earned a lot of respect in that front, but if you're going to beat the top guys and you have the skill set that Crone Gracie has, you're going to have to be able to get him down. And at the very least, with your striking, you're going to have to be able to set up like set up some takedown attempts. You're going to have to be able to do enough with the striking where people actually have to respect the strikes, get their hands up, uh, prepare to get hit, and then be able to to give you an opportunity, to give you an opening to shoot underneath. And Crone just wasn't doing anything to set himself up for, for takedowns. And as a result, he really didn't get a whole lot. Got in on some shallow overhooks and tried to pull guard, but even there, he just wasn't able to do much with it. So, well played by Cub Swanson. Swanson wasn't ever really in a point where he was that hurt, so for him, he's had some trouble, though he's a pretty experienced Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, he's had some trouble getting some in the past. Uh, but oftentimes, getting hit can definitely have an effect on that, uh, especially over long periods of time. With Crone, Crone wasn't ever really doing a whole lot to, to cause that issue, so Cub was able to enter those couple grappling exchanges he was in, clear-headed, and did a good job position-wise to, to get out and avoid any trouble. So good one for Cub Swanson there. Um, one of the other things that was talked about with that, and I, I got a lot of crap on a video that I made about this, is prior to this fight, I made up a video 
where I was taking a clip from Crone Gracie's pre-fight press conference, and I'm gonna play it right now. But or I'll, I'll play it right after right after this. But I was getting crap because I said that Crone Gracie called Cub Swanson a Creonch. Cub didn't or Crone didn't say Cub is a Creonch, but what Cub or what Crone did was say Cub is training at other gyms where I'm from. People who train at other gyms are a Creonch. So he's saying people who train at other gyms are Creonches. Cub trains at other gyms, therefore kind of put two and two together in your head. If you want to get down to like the nitty gritty and say, hey, he didn't specifically say it. I mean, look, I I could sit here right now and say. Luke Thomas is very angry at ESPN for not covering what's going on with the NBA. Luke Thomas feels as though the ESPN should cover a hot-button issue. Luke Thomas had an opportunity to cover a hot-button issue when T-Boy Irvin had a giant controversy with rape where a lot of their top guys, including Keenan Cornelius and JT Torres, ended up leaving the team. Luke Thomas chose not to do so because he was a member of Team Lloyd Irvin, and I don't believe Luke Thomas has talked about it yet. Now, from what I know, journalists who complain about other journalists not covering hot-button stories when they don't cover hot-button stories themselves when it involves them would be hypocrites. Now, after I said that, you could say, hey, I just called Luke Thomas a hypocrite, or you could say, I didn't because I never directly said Luke Thomas is a hypocrite. To me, I think most reasonable people would say that I just called Luke Thomas a hypocrite, and I think most reasonable people would say that what I'm about to play from Crone Gracie is him calling Cub Swanson a Creonge. Yeah, I do. I have uh, the way I grew up in training and fighting in martial arts is you basically have a clan, you have a team, and you're with your team forever, you know. And if you if you leave your team, you're a traitor. That's the way I grew up. And in Portuguese, they call it creonch. And so for me, I have this instilled in me. And no matter how things are going with me or my team, it's always my team. I don't get to just pick and choose as I go along with this career whether it's jiu-jitsu or whether it's fighting. Um, so I think that the, in the olden times, the war, you have a clan, and you can't just go back, oh, that, I didn't like this clan this time, and I'm going to go somewhere else. So I think ultimately, in, in modern day right now, you tell me something like that, I'm like, duh. But I want to see who, what Jim actually told them not to, because I saw him have a photo with a, with a jiu-jitsu gym, and I saw that... Um, uh, he said that, and I'm wondering what gym was that, because he doesn't have his gym already set up, he doesn't have jiu-jitsu training already set up, he doesn't have his whole team, he's been fighting for 15 years, and he doesn't have all these resources already, so it doesn't make any sense to me that this happened now, and it doesn't make any sense to me that uh, what gyms didn't let them train, that he was so interested in training that was going to make such a difference, and if so, let me know so I can send you guys some shirts. Yeah, so that was his answer right there. That's worth noting, after the fight, Cub Swanson went out of his way to say that he felt as though he was being called a traitor, and he also said that maybe having the fight go this way will teach Crone that there's a lot of techniques out there to learn, and don't just stay in one gym, actually go out and try to learn them. Uh, So he made an argument uh, saying, hey, maybe being a Creonch isn't the worst thing. Uh, In the video I did, I talked about just the idea of a Creonch and why I think it's just a stupid idea, Uh, at least from a Western standpoint. uh, If you look at it from a business standpoint, a creonch effectively is a term used to to talk to to criticize customers who would leave rather than sticking around and offering a larger lifetime value. And if you had any other business do that, it would just be bizarre yet funny. If you think about ESPN Plus, like if Bob Iger like 
put out a video like criticizing everyone who cancels ESPN Plus and called them like traitors, it, it would just be hilarious. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I'm the customer. I, I do what I want. I have the freedom to do that. It doesn't make me a piece of shit if I want to stream something else or if I want to go somewhere else. But there are some traditional jiu-jitsu gyms where they have this idea of the Creonch. And I know some people don't like that I'm making this claim. Some people don't like the fact that I'm comparing business and like a streaming service to martial arts. Um, because martial arts definitely has a, a, a lot of roots behind it, but at, at the end of the day, jujitsu is a product. At least in America, jujitsu is a product. It, it's something that you're gonna you're gonna train for enjoyment. It's something you're gonna train for personal development. But if you feel like there's a better place to go, or if you feel like the place you're training at at this current moment isn't the right place for you, then there really isn't anything wrong with leaving. Especially because a lot of times when you first start training in the first place, it's not like you know a whole lot about like the, the whole situation like if you haven't trained jiu-jitsu before and i told you hey uh in your area there's a checkmat school there's a auto school uh there's a tag team school there's an alliance school you don't know what any of that means uh you probably definitely don't know a whole lot about the trainers themselves so if you finally do get into jiu-jitsu you, you you take that first step you start training and you realize hey this person i'm training with right now is an absolute kook i shouldn't be training with them or you realize hey you know this guy's all right but there are better options for me you should be allowed to to leave and look for what's best for you. At the end of that, you got to look out for yourself. So, to me, the Creonch thing, it, it's understandable from a standpoint where it's been around for a while. Like, when someone like Crone Gracie starts talking about Creonches, I don't really take it personal. I don't, like, have issue with him specifically because it, it is something that's cultural. But on the same token, if we're just going to have an argument over whether or not the idea of a Creonch is a legitimate argument, whether it's a smart thing to to try to shame people into training in one place only. I, I just don't side with Crone on that. So before I wrap up the Crone Gracie thing, there were some tweets that Ben Askren had put out that I wanted to cover. So Ben Askren was pretty critical of Crone and in the process also ruffled some feathers with people who are fans of Hicks and Gracie. So after Crone lost, he put up an Instagram post with a picture of him punching Cubs Swanson saying, I, I won that fight. And Askren did not care for that at all. And in saying so, he took a dig, not just at Crone, but also at Crone's father, um, Hicks and Gracie. And, and the claim that he made there was that Hicks and Gracie is known for having this 400-0 fight record. And Askren basically saying, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure that was bullshit to begin with, but if this is how you guys determine who wins fights, now I can see where you get 400-0 from. So what he said is, also under this criteria, kind of like big, kind of like kind of like kid from Big Daddy. I win because I win. I now see how Hickson was 400-0. And that was in response to a tweet from or from MMA Fighting saying, Crone Gracie disagrees with the UFC Tampa decision lost to Cub Swanson. In quote, I won that fight. On top of that, he also said, holy shit, or holy shit, talk about lack of self-awareness. And he also, during the fight, said, do you guys think Crone has ever drilled a takedown? Someone should tell him this isn't 1997. So for the first two that I just went over, those being in, in response to Crone saying that he thought he won the fight, I mean, Crone definitely did not win that fight. Didn't win the fight in the numbers, and that's without even accounting for the fact that the punches that Cub was landing were significantly harder than the ones that Crone was landing. Crone obviously wasn't able to do a whole lot on the ground, never really won any grappling exchanges. Got close to a takedown at one point, but once he was on the ground, Cub was able to get away without any trouble. So Cub definitely won that fight. So for Crone to say that he won it, don't agree with him at all. For Ben Askren to also disagree with him seems fine. The little claim about Hicks and Gracie, I mean, look, it's not as though we have like video of all these fights that Hicks and Gracie was in. Also, 
a lot of these fights that Hicks and Gracie was supposedly in, a lot of them are like dojo storms uh, against martial arts that we know today just aren't very effective, so how much credence do you give that? I don't know. He, he never really fought his way to the top in MMA. He didn't have a bunch of MMA fights. He won all his MMA fights, but it's not as though he ever like worked his way to the top and had to like face like some of the, the actual legends of the sport, even though he fought in pride. So it's not as though we ever really knew how great of a fighter Hicks and Gracie actually was. There's sort of like this mystique around him. Like if he wanted to to become the Pride champion, he could have. If he would have fought for the UFC championship, he could have. We have no proof of that. But there there is some mystique around him, and Askren in, in this tweet is kind of calling bullshit on that. As far as the, do you guys think Cronin's ever drilled a takedown? Someone should tell them this isn't 1997. Like I said before, I don't know that not knowing takedowns was the issue for Cronin. I think the issue was him just not getting into a position where he could actually shoot for a takedown. Um... Also, there's some irony in Ben Askren ripping on Crone Gracie for not working his wrestling when Ben Askren doesn't particularly work at striking very much. Although, with that being said, Askren was able to get to either 18-0 or 19-0, uh, finding ways to actually close distance on guys, even though his striking wasn't that great, and be able to take him down, an issue that Crone was having. And if you are a fantastic grappler, it is very important for you to be a very good wrestler so you can actually get the fight into the, into the positions you want them to be in. So, is Askren wrong in saying that Crone could have done a better job in preparing his wrestling. I mean, probably. Again, the, the striking needs to be at a point where you can actually set up, the, set up the attacks and set up the takedowns, and that was, to me, the bigger issue than the lack of wrestling. Granted, he did get on a single leg at one point and didn't really look that great in it. Um, got into a clinch and really wasn't able to advance within that clinch and get to better positions and start working his way to a position where he could get a takedown. So there were definitely some areas where better wrestling could have helped out Crone immensely. But the striking was definitely an issue for him, too. As far as Ben Askren being a little hypocritical here, I, I mean, yeah, obviously Ben Askren hasn't trained his striking that well, but at least for Askren, he did get pretty far, uh, getting to the point where he was, I think he was top five when he fought Moss at all, uh, but getting to that point in the UFC, being a one champion, he, he's accomplished a lot doing what he's done, and at least for Askren, he, it's not just that he took that wrestling background that he had and then only worked with that. Though he didn't work on his striking a whole lot, he's definitely worked a lot on his mat grappling, uh, finding a way to to mix folk-style wrestling and also Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to, to be really effective on the mat, to be able to retain control, uh, to have positions where you can control someone while still being able to punch them hard. And as his career went along, he was starting to find more finishes. So I, I wouldn't rip into Askren too much on that in terms of saying, yeah, well, look, look who's talking, because at least he, he did find a style that worked for him. He didn't just take wrestling only and tried to drag his career along this far with just wrestling. He also really developed a good mat grappling game on top of it. So if you look at the three areas of fighting in terms of striking, wrestling, or striking takedowns, and then um, mat grappling, Askren is excellent at two of them. It's not as though he's excellent at just one being wrestling. And I think a lot of people make that mistake with him. On to the rest of the card for UFC, though. A lot of good fights on this card. We had, obviously in the coming event, we had Crone Gracie falling to Cub Swanson. Nico Price with a win over James Vick. Now, what was odd to me about this fight was when James Vick walked out, I I think one of those things, these things that happens is people assume if a fighter is killing themselves to make a weight and they go up a weight, then they're just going to walk around at that same exact weight they were walking at at the lower weight and just cut 10 pounds less or 15 pounds less. With Vick, it doesn't seem like that was the case. With Vick, it seems as though once he moved up to 170, it wasn't like, all right, well, I'm going to walk around at the same weight I walked around at when, when I was 155. It seems like he just kind of took a little bit of a break, and didn't look like he was in the best shape. Uh, so I'm not saying that that's the reason why he got knocked out, that he was still still had a ridiculous weight cut, and that was the issue. Obviously, when you take a really bad 
upkick, heel straight to the jaw. Uh, it's going to cause problems for you, but he, he just looks sloppy out there. It, it just didn't it, it didn't look like a very good version of James Vick, both physically and then also technically. So for him, he, he deals with the always dangerous Nico Price, gets caught, gets knocked out, four-fight losing streak. Don't know that he's that marketable. I think if the UFC does decide to cut bait with him, it's not going to really hurt them too much if someone like Bellator or someone else picks him up. Um, does he have it in him to to recover and make another run again and be an elite uh, an elite fighter again? I, I mean, maybe it's probably too early to write him off, but it, it seems as though he's his better days are behind him, and that's kind of unfortunate to see. Even though a lot of people don't like him as a person, I, I have no reason to like him or dislike him. It's just it, it's unfortunate to see a fighter have a fall from grace the way that he has. He was a guy who slowly but surely made his way into the top 15. He finally gets to the top 15, starts having some opportunities to fight some of the other top 15 guys and really make a run for it. Has a rough time and just hasn't looked good since then. Then we have Mackenzie Dern uh, losing to Amanda Rivas, as I already talked about. Matt Favola gets a split decision win over Luis Pena, survives a really big flying knee, um, is able to recover and do just enough to get the win in the judges' eyes, and then Eric Anders gets a split decision win over Gerald Mearshart. On the prelims, we have Ryan Spann getting a guillotine choke against Devin Clark. Mike Davis versus Thomas Gifford. Now, this fight, I feel like I need to go back and watch it because from what I've read online, there was a lot of criticism for the refs in this fight. I saw the first round of this fight, and then I went out, um, was able to get back in time for the Dern fight. So I didn't get to see rounds two and three. I did get to see the finish of this. At the end of the first round, I was like, man, this is pretty close to done. Like, he, he's barely getting up here at the end. But it, from what it sounds like, it sounds like Round two was more the same, and round three was more the same until he finally gets caught at the end. And the ref who was overseeing that fight was not allowed to oversee any other fights for the rest of the night, so it seems like the commission also agrees that the ref was at, at issue there. I know it can get tricky sometimes, because for the most part, when there is a KO or a TKO, you're generally having one of two conditions met. Either a conditions met where a fighter is put in a position where it's abundantly clear that they're not going to be able to to intelligently defend themselves anymore, so that would be like Valentina Shevchenko versus Jess Guy, where Shevchenko knocks her out with a kick, she falls down, stiff as a board, and you don't even have to wait for Shevchenko to hit her a couple times on the ground because you already know she's not going to be able to defend herself, so then you jump in there. And then there are times where someone's stuck in a position on the ground um, where they're not able to defend themselves, or even on the feet where they're not able to defend themselves. They they aren't doing anything to intelligently defend themselves, and so you have to stop it there. There are some fights com that come up, and that, that fight that Mario Yamasaki refereed between... Ketchware and Shevchenko came up where there wasn't ever a time where the, the fighter was just not completely unconscious and you could tell that they weren't going to be able to defend themselves. There were times where they were having trouble defending themselves, but whenever you requested that they show some sign of intelligent defense, they actually did it. But the, even though they showed some intelligent defense, there wasn't any intelligent offense and they just kept getting hit over and over again. So in that way, it's kind of tricky because there isn't like that one final point where it's like this person's stuck and they're not getting out. And in that way... It, it can be tough for a ref to jump in. Now, with that being said, it is a ref's job to jump in. It is a ref's job to understand, hey, look, I know that this fighter is still putting their hands up. They're still throwing back occasionally, but they've just been taking a beating. There's no sign to indicate that this is going to change. I, I need to call it now, even though there isn't like a definitive moment. And it sounds like that's what the case was in this fight, but I, I'd have to go back and see to see whether or not I agree with the decision made. But all of Twitter seemed to agree that the ref was completely out of line here. Uh, some other fighters seem to agree that the referee was completely out of line here. The commission agreed with that he was, he was out of line there, so I would tend to believe that the referee was out of line, but that, that's one of those things where I'll have to see it again for myself to to form my own opinion. But it does seem like, in all likelihood, the ref was definitely out of line here, and Gifford 
took a really bad beating. Afterwards, he had a post that... Uh, before the fight, he, he came out to gospel music. He has Jesus Saves on his arms, like, tattooed. Like, he's definitely a Jesus guy, so it seemed like what he said was on brand for him. But with that being said, for a guy to take the beating that he did and then come back and say, hey, look, what I did was similar to Jesus before he got crucified, like... God, that's just not something you want to hear from an MMA fighter after they get beaten down. You're, you're just glad that he can talk. You're glad that he's not um, dealing with a swollen brain where he's got to be induced into a coma like what happens to some boxers. But from all accounts, it was just not a good situation. Uh, then we have Davison Figueredo versus Tim Elliott. Uh, Elliott, who's normally known for having a good guillotine and having some good chokes himself, ends up shooting and getting caught in guillotine himself. Figueredo was able to finish the arm in guillotine. Uh, so Elliott was pretty frustrated with that result, but for Figueredo, pretty good for him. Puts him, him in a position, and it, it, it's a point that he made as well, where if Cejudo doesn't want to come back to featherweight or if he doesn't do so soon, Figueredo versus Benavides for either an interim title or a vacant flyweight title would make a lot of sense, and getting a win like that over Tim Elliott, who is a previous title challenger, definitely helps him out and definitely helps him make a case. So he'll be watching closely on how Henry Cejudo's recovering and how Henry Cejudo decides to proceed um, being a champion in two weight classes, but it doesn't seem all that crazy now that Davidson Figueredo could find himself in a fight for a belt, whether it's an interim, in, in interim title or just the outright title sometime soon after getting this win here. So a kind of weird that this was in the middle of the ESPN Plus prelims, but still a good fight, and for the people who found a way to watch it, definitely worth their time. Uh, then we had Marlon Chito Vera who I don't believe has fought since that fight got canceled against Sean O'Malley, uh, but he gets his opportunity again, fights Andre Ewell, and ends up getting a TKO against him. We have Miguel Baeza getting a knockout over Hector Aldana. Marvin Vittori with a 30-27 unanimous decision win over Andrew Sanchez. Vittori's a guy who a lot of people scoffed at him when he said that he feels like he could beat Israel Adesanya now. They fought like a year and a half ago, and Vittori, I think it was a split decision, but Vittori absolutely did win a round in that fight. So to me, he's one of these guys where he's not ranked yet, but he's definitely a guy who's going to give a lot of people at middleweight a problem. He's a lot better than I think a lot of people realize, and for him, being a tough a tough competitor, and Andrew Sanchez, I believe, is a former Ultimate Fighter winner, and doing so by winning every single round, it's pretty impressive. So I'd like to see him get some more opportunities against some of the top guys in the division. He did have a fight against Adesanya before Adesanya was even ranked. Uh, but I would like to see um, him now given some opportunities against the top 15 guys and really given a chance to climb his way back up and make the case for himself, at least by beating some other top guys, that he, he does deserve another shot at Adesanya. Because some people feel like Adesanya's way ahead of him now. I do think Adesanya's ahead of him, but I also am a pretty big believer in Marvin Vittori as well. And on the first fight in the car, we had J.J. Aldrich getting a unanimous decision win over Lauren Mueller. Uh, so on to the next fights that are coming up. We have UFC Boston. And the main event of this card is going to be a light heavyweight possible title eliminator between Dominic Reyes, who's now 11-0, versus Chris Weidman, who's coming up for middleweight. Weidman, at least if you just look at the wins and the losses, hasn't had the best run lately at middleweight. But if you actually look at the individual fights, all these losses are fights where he was winning at one point or another whether it was the Romero fight, whether it was the Musasi fight. Uh, you look at the Jack Ray fight as well. He was up two rounds to nothing before he gets knocked out. So he, he's a guy who's, who's definitely in there with some of the best guys at middleweight and was either winning fights or was ahead on fights before he would lose. We've seen Anthony Smith, who I think might have broken in the top 15 for a short period of time, move up, win th three fights really quickly and get a shot at the title. We saw Tiago Santos, who was, I don't think ever broke the top 10. 
uh, come in and earn a shot at the title and even win a fight against John Jones on one of the judges' scorecards, though I don't agree with that scorecard. So for a guy like Chris Weidman to come up and say, hey, these are guys who weren't even in the top ten, I was the champion and a, a constant top contender, he, he definitely has a case here where if he's able to knock off a guy like Reyes, he could potentially find himself in a title fight after just one fight. For Reyes, I feel like he got lucky. He probably should have not been given the decision against Volkan Ozdemir. He was. He remains undefeated. Um, but he has an opportunity now to fight against a former champion, and if he does get the win here, it'd be tough to argue that he doesn't deserve the next shot. The other guys who would have an argument here would be Johnny Walker and um, Beeson 25-8, who's that? Um, Corey Anderson. It'd be between them, but Anderson's had a handful of losses at the weight, isn't exactly the most exciting guy, not exactly the most marketable guy, and at least from a matchup standpoint, doesn't seem to really offer any issue for John Jones anywhere. So Reyes potentially could earn himself a title shot with an impressive performance here, but same goes for Weidman. As far as who I think is going to win, I think Weidman's going to win this fight. Weidman's definitely... I I don't know if there's like a way to, lie, to bet on rounds, like to bet who's going to win an individual round, like if they'd go back and look at the judges' scorecards and judge that, but if, if there is a way to do that, I would just put a, a fat chunk of money on Chris Weidman for the first round, at least. Weidman's shown us, at least in those last few fights, even the ones he loses, he's at least starting off strong. It's just the finishing that's been an issue for him. Uh, with this being a five-round fight, maybe there are going to be some gas tank, gas tank issues if he doesn't get Reyes out of there early, but I feel like this is going to be one of those fights where if he's able to get Reyes down and early on, uh, he's going to be able to get to some dominant positions to really make Reyes have to work really hard off his back to, to stay alive and not get finished, and if that's the case, even if Wyman start, starts to gas towards the end of the fight, Reyes, I'm sure, will have some issues himself. Uh, so I would pick Chris Wyman to win this fight, but I'm definitely interested in seeing it. In the coming event, we have Jeremy Stevens versus Jair Rodriguez, a fight that was interesting stylistically before the main event in UFC Mexico, uh, but didn't really have a whole lot of a storyline behind it. Now we have a really good storyline behind it because Rodriguez seems to think that Jeremy Stevens is afraid of him, and Stevens is fighting off the claims that he punked out of a fight when Stevens is probably the last guy who would do so. Who would do so. so hopefully this fight doesn't end in 15 seconds with an eye poke. Hopefully we get a full fight there. Rodriguez looked okay. I mean, I guess he looked better in the first 15 seconds than Stevens did, but Stevens tends to like to get his reads and then really start to make you pay later on. So hopefully we get the full three-round fight here. We won't get a five-round fight like we were supposed to get in, in Mexico City. We're obviously not going to be getting a fight at elevation, but... I guess it's better than just getting that 15-second fight and then getting nothing else. In the feature bout, we have Greg Hardy making his return against Ben Sassoli. Sassoli is probably not going to be trying to wrestle Hardy. I think he'll actually try to stand there and trade with him, which will be interesting to see. Hardy is not the most technical striker. He tends to throw one strike at a time, though he does hit extremely hard. So is Sassoli going to feel a couple punches and then get really tentative like some of Hardy's other opponents, or is he just going to go out there, wing it, and throw punches and bunches and hope that his volume is able to to disrupt Hardy and that he'll be able to outstrike him on the feet. That'll be interesting to see, but Hardy's definitely a guy where a lot of people a lot of people hate him, a lot of people love to hate him. So this is going to be an opportunity where a guy in Sassoli who's definitely got some knockout power is going to have a chance to make a lot of people happy. And though some people might not want to admit it, they're, they're definitely going to want to tune in and see if, if Hardy gets beat here and if he, if he gets beat convinc- convincingly. Then we have Joe Lozon fighting against Jonathan Pierce. Uh, just a good opportunity for Lozon to get on the card, although I don't think Lozon's really at a, at a point anymore where he's going to make a run for a title. Uh, just an exciting fighter to watch, though. We have Macy Barber versus Jillian Robertson. I talked about this on the last podcast I did, the the one talking about the people who offer the most difficulty for the current champions. And I was saying that Macy Barber is someone who I I appreciate that she goes out of her way to, to say that she believes in herself. I appreciate that she, she calls herself the future. I appreciate that 
she thinks that she's going to be the youngest UFC champion ever. I don't like in in any sports, um, especially not MMA, where you really have to sell yourself and really have to to capture the fans' imagination more so than other sports. But I really don't like when when athletes are afraid to 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 sound confident. And so I appreciate that Macy Barber does go out of her way to sound confident and does go out of her, out of her way to remind people how good she thinks she is. But from what I've seen in the octagon, I just don't think that her skills match up with with her mouth. And though there are a lot of fans who are, are kind of buying into the hype that she's helped generate, from what I've seen, I, I just don't see her, her being this dominant fighter that a lot of people think that she is. In this fight with Robertson, at least in theory, she should have the edge on the feet against Jillian. Jillian's been successful in getting other girls down on the ground. Uh, is a pretty good purple belt in jiu-jitsu. I think she might be a brown belt now, but even if she's not, uh, has a very effective game for MMA. Will it be enough where if she, where if she's able to get, to uh, get Macy Barber down, she's able to finish her? Uh, that'll be worth watching. I know Macy likes to play from top. I don't know how her bottom game is. So there could be a lot to be a lot to be learned here from Macy Barber facing a, a tough grapple in her division and Jillian Robertson. But to me, I think a lot of people are expecting Macy Barber to run right through her. That's not an expectation of mine at all. I think this is going to be a very dif- difficult fight for her and. I'd probably actually lean Jillian Robertson's way just in terms of who I think is going to win this fight. And then we have Deron Wynn versus Darren Stewart. Uh, Wynn is DC's protege. Uh, pretty short guy, but excellent wrestling, world-level wrestling. Uh, Darren Stewart, going to be much longer than him. Has a lot of power in his hands. It'll be interesting to see if he's able to keep Wynn off him. Not exactly the easiest guy to take down, and if you can't get him down, you would figure that Wynn's going to be in some trouble here. But Wynn's performance against Spicely... Uh, was surprisingly good given the, the reach disadvantage he was after him to outland Spicely as much as he did. It was pretty impressive, so it feels like a good opportunity to learn more about how good Deron Wynn is right now, especially on the feed, and if he's able to close distance and get Darren Stewart down, you figure it'd be a, a, a rough go for Darren Stewart. Then the prelims, we have Charles Rosa versus Manny Bermudez. Bermudez just suffered his first loss in his last fight. Uh, creative jiu-jitsu guy, um, mostly a grappler. His striking's definitely been improving over time, but his grappling is really where his strengths lie. So it'll be interesting to see how he matches up with Rosa. We have Molly McCann versus Deanna Belbita. Kyle Bokniak, uh, always exciting fighter, versus Sean Woodson. Randy Costa versus Boston Salmon, who is fighting in Boston, so that's perfect matchmaking there. Court McGee versus Sean Brady. Brandon Allen versus Kevin Holland. And Daniel Spitz versus Tanner Boser. So the next topic I want to talk about is the issue that's been going on with the NBA in China recently. And the issue that's been going on has been the NBA has gone out of their way to, to be this league where they encourage their athletes to be, quote-unquote, more than athletes, where they encourage people around the business to, to really push for social causes that they feel are important. And in doing so, one of the members of the NBA, a GM for the Houston Rockets named Daryl da- named Darryl Morey, decided to tweet out that he stands with Hong Kong, which is trying to at least exert some independence from China. Uh, they're, they're trying to become a demo- democratic region, whereas China is more communist. And there's been a lot of violent protests surrounding that. And with the NBA trying to do business in China, this obviously caused a lot of issues for them. The Chinese government was not too pleased with this. They don't have freedom of speech there. And as a result, they punished the NBA for this. They cut off the... They pretty much cut off the Houston Rockets at this point. Weren't showing the games. Uh, not allowing Nike to sell Rockets apparel anymore. And it really served as an opportunity for... Other people in the NBA, people like Steve Kerr, people like LeBron James, who've been outspoken to really come out and really, really, really speak up for democracy, and they failed to do so, and it's caused a lot of issues for them. As far as how this affects the UFC, it wasn't all that long ago that John Wei Lee won the UFC title at 115, and the UFC decided to make some some more um, investments in China. 
They're looking to create a performance center out there. They're looking to renegotiate a TV deal and earn about $20 million a year. I think right now they're at $10 million a year out there. So they're looking to up their business in China all while this is happening. And there are two ways to look at it. First off, how do you compare the UFC to the NBA in terms of how this should be handled and how do you think the UFC should handle the situation? So for the NBA, I think if you're going to criticize the NBA because they've been trying to be the woke league and now that they have a chance to actually stand up against something that's wrong, they're not doing it. In that way, the NBA absolutely deserves to be ripped on. But if you're going to look at it from a question of should the NBA be doing business in China at all? Should American companies be doing business in China at all? Should companies do business in regions of the world where human rights aren't deemed sufficient at all? I feel like that's a lot more of a complicated question. And we've definitely seen that play out in the states where you have like even individual states where if one state decides that they're going to change their laws regarding abortion, a state won't even like allow public employees to, to travel to that location or at least they won't fund it. So if people are going to be like that within the United States, just imagine how they look at other countries in the world. I think it gets a little bit too complicated at that point. There probably should be a line somewhere where you say, hey, look, we just can't do business in this country because their human rights abuses are, are too much. Does China cross that line? I, I feel like at this point, it's not as though like any real line has been drawn in terms of the business world in terms of like these are the countries that – these are the types of countries you can do business in and these are the types you can't. There are a ton of businesses that do business in China. Uh, whether they use Chinese suppliers or whether they just go to China and try to sell entertainment products like the UFC does and like the NBA does. So I think in that way, I, I can't really rip on the UFC for doing business in China at this point. But this is going to be a story to watch, especially now with a lot more people having the Hong Kong protests brought to their attention. It's kind of weird that there was a lot of a lot of ugly scenes going on beforehand that had nothing to do with the NBA, but now there has been this NBA controversy. The, the issues in China have been brought to a lot more people's attention. It'll be interesting to see how American consumers feel about companies that do business in China and if they tend to try to pressure companies out of there. If that's the case, that could affect the UFC further down the line. And if it does, um, would the UFC be a company that would say, hey, look, you know what, we're, we're going to go with public opinion here, we're going to fall out of China, or would they double down? Uh, I, I feel like they double down, but at this point, I, I don't feel like they're in a position where I can really like judge them too negatively. I think there's there's a lot more that has to happen, a lot more that needs to be seen before you, you can really rip into them too much here. Next thing to talk about is the PFL, where there was an event where Ali Abdelaziz, who used to work for the PFL and was forced out of the PFL because of a lot of conflicts of interest with his fighters fighting for the PFL and matchmaking seeming to be um, done in favor of his clients rather than what's best for the company. Um, but from what it sounds like, he sucker punched Abraham Kawa, who is Malky Kawa's brother. And Abe is also a um, member of First Round Management, which is the company that handles a lot of different athletes, but among them is John Jones. And it looks as though right now there are some assault charges that are in play for Ali of the LZs. How far are they going to go? I'm not quite sure. There there seems to be a lot of a lot of concern in the MMA community that while Ali seems to be well-liked by his fighters, that he, he's got a lot, of, a lot of issues with his background in terms of how he got to where he's gotten, um, what sort of judo background did he have, uh, how did he get into the management space? How is how does how does he constantly get his fighters great opportunities? Uh, does does he blackmail people? Like what does he know? Why is he able to do what he's able to do so far? And why has he been able to grow the way that he has? Even though it seems as though he comes from a criminal background. As far as that goes, there are, there are actual investigative journalists that are on the case with him. Now, unfortunately, it, it seems as though the journalists who are put on the case with him seem to be people who going into it have a bias against him to begin with and so you, you kind of have to wonder 
if they're gonna if they're gonna handle it right. Ideally, you would actually have a an unbiased criminal justice system handle this. I, I know he's gone through that criminal justice system a, hand, a handful of times, and at least he's a free man. But it does seem like there's there's a little bit more to it with him. But at this point, I I just feel like we're gonna have to wait for some more reports to come out and see see what the real business is with or what the real deal is with Ali Abdelaziz. Um, but hey, if the fighters under a stable are happy, I, I guess at the very least that's good. But it does seem odd that he's oftentimes able to get his fighters um, big opportunities that other managers aren't able to get, and it seems odd that he'd be able to do so. And you kind of wonder why why is it? Is he just that good of a negotiator, or is there something more at play? So definitely a situation to watch. I don't know that this brawl is going to bring any of that part to light in terms of like figuring out why he's been so successful as a manager, uh, whether he's doing something shady or whether there's something more to it, but... With that being said, it's generally not a good thing to be attacking people. It seems like that's been an issue at um, at, at the PFL in the past, uh, especially with Ali Abdelaziz. And we, we definitely saw some issues over the weekend where a lot of people were upset about this. And hopefully, hopefully those charges actually do lead to some sort of investigation. We actually get to learn some more about Ali from this. But it does seem like there's a lot of, a lot of skeletons in the closet, and at some point they're probably going to come out. But not quite yet, but hopefully this is this is something that helps push us in that right direction where we eventually do get to find out what's going on there. Last thing I want to talk about is Cain Velasquez retiring from MMA and going over to the WWE. So for him, he's dealt with a lot of injuries in MMA, and he, he's a guy who you can make a pretty good argument that at his peak, when he was at his best, he was the heavyweight goat, that peak Cain Velasquez was, was the best heavyweight out there. If you look at who the other people you'd be looking at heavyweight are, you'd be looking at Fedor Emelianenko, and you'd be looking at um, Stipe Miocic. Personally, I believe if you take the best Stipe Miocic and put him up against, up against the best Cain Velasquez, I'd, I'd pick Cain Velasquez in that fight, but unfortunately for him, part of what made him so great was his pace, part of what made him so great was the fact that he worked so hard and was able to develop the skills that, that he did as quickly as he did, um, but in working that hard, he, he tended to overwork himself, get himself injured a lot, and that really affected his ability to fight. Wasn't in the cage all that often. Did have that fight with Francis Ngannou. Um, got clipped behind the ear. Um, had his knee go out and just wasn't a great way for him to finish. But with that being said, if this is it for him, I think a lot of fans are still going to remember, remember the good times for him. Remember when he was at his best. Remember how good he really was. Um, but if he enjoys WWE, then great for him. A uh, good way for him to make money. It seems like he's probably not going to have to work every single weekend or every single week even. Uh, he'll probably have a bit of a reduced schedule, so that'll be good for him. He won't have to overwork himself. Um, hopefully he doesn't deal with too many injury issues there. And it, it seems like he's always really wanted to get into the professional wrestling scene, so this is a good opportunity for him while, while he's still physically healthy and phys- physically capable of doing so. So I, I guess in that way I'd, I'd congratulate him. I'd, I'd say thanks for what you did in MMA. Um, as, fan, as a fan, I appreciate what he did. Brought a lot of great memories, had a lot of great fights, and hopefully he enjoys his time in the WWE. Uh, but that covers it for this week's topics. Uh, again, as a reminder, I am going to be doing a, graf- uh, a grappling match for Tap Cancer out this weekend. Link is in the bio. It's also in the... Um, it, there's also going to be a link on the video if you're watching this on YouTube or on BitChute. So if you can make it, great. Don't expect you to. If you want to donate some money to Tap Cancer out, that'd be great as well. Um, but either way, thanks for taking the time to listen. Uh I know this was a little bit late, but that's why I wanted to give you guys two podcasts this weekend instead of one. And hopefully I'll be able to do some other videos as well. I, I know that Mackenzie Dern and Chrome Gracie, um, both pretty hot, hot topics. So though I did dig pretty deep into them here in this podcast, I think I can probably do a little bit more digging as well. So 
I'll look to give you guys some videos on them as well and give you some more information as well and just some more takeaways on their fights and what to expect them expect from them moving forward.